Good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know what brought you here today. Whether it's just out of routine and you've decided to make being a part of a church community a rhythm in your life, or for some reason um, somebody dragged you, um, or you just felt compelled to maybe to tap into to something that God was saying to you or that you want him to say to you. But regardless of what brought you here, you're here. And if you take a quick minute, you'll notice that there's, if you look to your left, can everybody do that? Look to the left. My left, your left. Look to your right. There's empty seats all around you, Right? Those spaces are intended to be filled um, if people want to, right? Um, And yours, believe it or not, was saved just for you. And whether it's, it's, you know, it seems unintentional, it's very intentional. And so before we dive into this conversation over the next 15 or 20 minutes or so, I think it's really important to just ride out the gate to establish where we're headed and what I want to talk about. My hope is this morning that God will awaken, God himself, not the amazing music, not the um, fancy words, but God himself would awaken things inside of you that for regardless of how they got there, but have fallen asleep. Maybe there are things that you need to rediscover about yourself, about your relationships with people, or maybe your relationships with church, or at the very least, your relationship with God. Most of us, um, for those of you who don't know, we're kind of in the, in the middle of a, of a series about love. In the first couple of weeks, J.D. talked about the first week you talked about identity and about God's love for us, that you are not a citizen, although you live here and you work here, and this is where you um, eat and do all the normal human things. Your citizenship doesn't belong here. It's in heaven. And last week, we talked a little bit about uh, the idea of friendship, and J.D. opened up this idea of agape love, and he talked about the love that that a guy named David had for his friend Jonathan. And he talked about um, the love that David even had for his son who betrayed him and getting past some of those hurts and what friendship really looks like. And all of us, whether it started when we were five or even now in, in our older age, we all have relationships for a few different reasons. And in Greek, it's based on three different things. Pathos, Logos and ethos. Some of us have relationships in our lives because the relationship's based on utility. It makes a lot of sense that if your car breaks down, that you should have a relationship with a mechanic. It's probably a good idea, right? So that you don't get taken advantage of and things turn out to be a whole lot more expensive than they really should be. It's a good idea. If there's something wrong with your heart or something physical that's happening with your body, And you have a family friend or someone that you know on your block that's a doctor. That's a relationship out of utility, right? It serves a purpose. 
And then there's another kind of relationship that's based on the idea and the understanding of what we call pathos. And it's the relationship that's based on emotion. Usually women experience this a lot faster than men do. It takes us a little while to kind of get through the surface of things, right? But there's a connection there, and it's based on emotion. You enjoy the same things. You're passionate about the same stuff. It's, a, it's an emotional connection. And those relationships tend to be very fleeting. And then there's this deeper level of relationship, a third degree, and it's the deepest of all degrees that you can ever imagine. And it's the degree called an ethos degree. And ethos is where we get the word ethics from, and it's based on the character of the person that you're in relationship with. It's the kind of relationship where you can finish their sentences before those words even come out of someone's mouth. You know their thoughts and they know yours. Marriage relationships are supposed to have that kind of depth and that type of integrity. Aristotle said that if you have one of these in your lifetime, just one, then you're indeed fortunate. It's that rare. It's that uncommon. I was thinking about the number of people that exist in the world. There's over 8 billion. That's a lot of people. 8 billion people in the world. And there's 6,600 different languages on the globe. You've heard that, that phrase that love is the universal language, right? Somehow you can come from polar opposite ends of the planet and meet and connect. And somehow if there's a spark, there's a spark. If there's some sort of chemistry, it's, it happens and it rises to the surface of your throat. And you know that there's a connection. Our souls crave it. We can't live without it. When babies are born, they need it. They don't go or grow beyond the first day without it. And if you think about the number of languages and the number of people, and you think about all the misinterpretations and maybe the different variations and even the different misconceptions of what love really is, right? There's artificial forms of love, and then there's real love. J.D. talked about last week that you can't know what love is until you know who God is because the Bible says that God is love. And let's just be really honest and open and maybe very frank. There's a radical difference from the real thing versus the cheap imitation, right? Dr. Pepper is better than Dr. Thunder. Can I get an amen? Right? Think about any product you've ever purchased. There's the brand that has a quality attached to it. You know what to expect. You know what you're going to get. There's no dilution. It's not dissolved. It's not minimized in its concentration. It's the right thing. It's the thing that can be expected and it can be counted on. And on some level, it's more costly than the cheap imitation, right? Because it has value. You ever wondered why humanity was even created in the first place? What's the purpose? What's the point? See, if God is omnipotent and he's all-powerful and he's omniscient and he's all-knowing and he's omnipresent and he's always around, what does he need us for? Why are we even here? What difference does it really make? 
When you blink, your life was here, and you blink again, and your life is gone. But the Bible tells us that that God created us so that we can love him because we want to, not because we have to. You see, if he tells angels and demons to do things, they have to obey. They have no choice. He tells a tree to die, and it will die instantly. He tells it to grow, and it will grow and bear fruit. See, but with us, we have a choice. We get to choose to love him because we want to, not because we're pushed into it or we're forced to or manipulated by it. We get to choose. It's a pure kind of love. The Bible even says that nothing can separate us from that real love. Not height, not depth. Nothing in all creation can separate you from God's love in your life. Now, you get to choose to, again, accept it or ignore it. It's entirely up to you. That's your God-given right. The interesting thing is, is that I think there are, when we talk about, like, these ideas of friendship and the ethos and pathos and logos, and that's the core of relationship. But then if we go deeper and we take a, a, a deeper look at what love is, see, the Greeks had all kinds of versions or, or variations of love. It wasn't just a uniform word that would be used for everything. When I say that I love my mom, my mom it's radically different than when I say I love my wife. When I love my child, it's different than saying I love coffee. They mean different things. And the Greeks weren't blind to this. They, they knew it. And so what they did was they created these different versions of love. And so one of the versions is storge. And it's one of those things where it's that kind of like familial relationship between a parent and a child. It's that kind of love. C.S. Lewis calls it the four loves. And there's another kind of love that's philos, which is that friendship love, which at the root is what I was telling you about Aristotle. And then, and then there's this other kind of love, this romantic love. It's called eros. And it's a neutral kind of romantic space. It can either be used for good things and, whole, and be holy and pure and right and special and exclusive and honoring and devoted and loyal. Or it can be used in a way that's perverted and misused and abused for things that hurt you and don't help you. And somewhere in the middle of all that, there's this agape kind of love that J.D. was talking about last week. It's an unconditional love. That There's nothing that you have to do. You don't have to jump through hoops, pat your head, rub your tummy, hop on one foot, have the degree, show up to church so many days, say so many Hail Marys. You don't have to do any of those things to earn love. You cannot earn it. And it's the kind of love that because you can't earn it, there is no ladder to heaven, that God did everything imaginable to bring it to you. Brought it to you in flesh so that it wasn't just a theory. It wasn't just a philosophy. It wasn't something that's limited to a book or a song or a movie or a TV show, but it's something that you could actually touch. You could hold it in your hand. And in the blink of an eye, in the moment of a breath, know the deeper realms of what love is supposed to be. And, it, and to be blunt, it sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? 
It sounds like nonsense. Blame it on Frozen. Anybody see Frozen? No? Did I miss something? Did it just go like this? I sat through that first movie with my nieces and stuff, and holy cow, like within the first five minutes, you're in that song, let it go, let it go. And I'm like, I'm, getting, I'm letting it go out of this room right now. And now there's a second one, so they just put those things on repeat once they're successful, right? But think about it. Every fairy tale you've ever read, every story you've ever been in, that you've ever encountered has the same criteria attached to it. Blame it on Disney. Walt Disney created the first animated fairy tale. In 1917, it was Snow White. And he actually got it from the Brothers Grimm from like 1812, right? But every fairy tale has the same criteria. These are the things. Let me share these with you. It's very interesting. The first thing is recognition. Recognition is the very first thing in every fairy tale you've ever read. It says no matter the circumstance, no matter what it is, whether there's a witch, whether the person fell asleep, whether she's locked up by her stepmom, whether she's turned into a frog or whatever, it doesn't matter. But there's a recognition. No matter the circumstance, she will be found. The damsel in distress. And then there's this element of adoration, to be adored. Does this sound familiar? That the prince will find a way. That the princess will be loved and the prince will figure it out. He'll make it happen. No matter what he has to go through, no matter force he has to rage rage beyond, no matter what animal he has to overcome, he'll find a way and the princess will be saved. Some of us are looking for those things in our own lives, whether it's in a romantic relationship, whether it's through a friendship, or sometimes we look at church in that view, don't we? To change everything for us. And then there's that element of consolation. Everything is going to be okay. And we get to live happily ever after. Do you remember your dreams? Just pause for a second. I don't care if it was when you were five or when you were 10 or if it was yesterday or maybe it was this morning. What do you dream about? Did you imagine that your life was going to be where it is right now at this given second? Or were there different expectations? Did you accomplish the things that you felt like you were supposed to accomplish? Did you become the firefighter or the police officer or, you know, that whatever, the, the single career-minded woman, whatever it is that, that you imagined in your life that your life would turn out to be? Do you have the degrees that you were supposed to stack up or play in the NFL? What happens when those expectations don't meet the realities? Definitions matter, don't they? If we don't understand the distinctives of a real kind of love compared to the artificial forms, things get really messy very quick. And whether you look at love as a curse or a liberation, it's magnetic. C.S. Lewis said that he, he... 
he made this comment when he was talking about his wife. He said, I never knew that love could hurt so much, and yet I love you. And beyond every door, I hear your voice saying to me, this is the land of shadows. Real life hasn't begun yet. Isn't that beautiful? This is what the Bible says about love. Can you put that up there, Julie? It's in 1 John, it's 4, 16 through 19. This is what it says. And so we know and rely, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. That uninterrupted, uncut, unedited, in its full concentration, pure, without blemish, love. This is how love is made complete in us. Complete meaning lacking nothing. Every I's dotted, every T's crossed, it's all there. Among us so that we will have the confidence on the day of judgment when we come to God face to face. In this world, we're just like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is the one who's made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. That's the standard. If you're stuck in those spaces and those situations, you don't know what decision to make or which way to move or how to react or how to respond to whatever life circumstance it is, whether it's in relationships or your job or whatever it may look like, that's it. That's the standard. You know, I was thinking, what are the things that people really would do for love? Like, what are you really willing to do for it? It's kind of crazy. It's intoxicating on some level, right? We'll do anything to get it. Won't we? I was thinking about sixth grade. Let's lighten it up a little bit. When I was in sixth grade, there was a sixth grade dance. I had no money. I collected cans for like six to eight weeks. It was like two months of collecting cans, and I took them to the grocery store every day to cash them in and collected pennies so I could afford a ticket for myself. And then, of course, as a boy, because chivalry's not dead, that's how it's supposed to be, the fairy tale, right? I'm supposed to buy the ticket. And so I bought the ticket for the girl. So we get to the dance, and guess what happens? The song comes on. It's our song. I think it was Bobby Brown or something like that, but I'm dating myself. Anyways, it was a good song, whatever it was. And this is what happened. We're standing there, and all of a sudden there's this interaction where she puts her hands on my shoulders. And we're doing the, we're doing the shuffle because I don't know how to dance, so I'm just doing the side-to-side thing like they tell you in the movies, right? You just do side-to-side, and you, act, you just own it. Act like you know what you're doing, Right? And the funny thing is, is that girls, you know, in junior high are way more advanced than boys are, right? She knows what she's doing. She's doing things I've never seen before, and I'm just doing this, enjoying it. She's got her hands on my shoulders. And I look over, and there's another couple doing the same thing, and guess what happens? He, my friend has got his hands on her waist. And I'm like, oh, heck, I didn't know what to do with these hands, right? I'm supposed to do something with the hands, but I'm still shuffling side to side, I kid you not, you ever had one of those like out-of-body experiences 
where like everything disconnects and what you intend to do somehow doesn't turn out to be the way that you thought that it was going to do, you know? It didn't happen the way that you imagined or pictured or rehearsed it in your head. That's what happened to me. I grabbed, I remember pulling my hands up like this and going like this and it did one of these and I put my hands right on top of her shoulders too. A hundred junior high kids, they're all getting down and me and her were just doing this shoulder to shoulder, enjoying the song. That relationship like was over after that song, by the way. She ditched me and went and hung out with somebody else who knew what they were doing. And I wasted all that time and all that money and all that energy in trying to, to prove something. See, the thing is, is that we'll travel great distances to get what we really want and what we really care about, won't we? We'll save and we'll spend our last penny to buy the thing that really matters, the thing that we want. We'll even get naked. We live in a culture that will get naked with strangers in order to satiate that craving of feeling loved. Begs the question, what do you love and what are you willing to do to have it? Now, remember, I just said, there's nothing you can do, right, to get God's love. You can't earn it. However, what we can do is prepare our hearts for it, right? There are things inside of you that are dormant, that need to be awakened. When you first encountered Jesus, there was something magnificent and supernatural that happened inside of you, both in your head and in your heart. You can't meet Jesus and not experience it. It's not a mundane interaction like all the other interactions you've ever had. It's a supernatural one. It's the connection between the things that are human and temporal and the, the things that are divine and eternal. And when those things meet, they're catalytic. They're electric. And it's undeniable. And somewhere along the way, through the numbness of frequency, whether it's been because the way that you've been treated or because the way that people have misrepresented what real love looks like and what it's supposed to be like, whether it's with churches that you've walked life through and somehow didn't live up to your expectations or failed you horribly. God hasn't forgotten you. But somehow we need to find our way back to being open and ready for whatever it is that he wants to do in your life. There's this, um, I always talk to, to, about J.D. and Kathy being from Australia and stuff. I've never been to Australia. I've been lots of places, but not there. Um, and so I'm always like, culture's a big deal to me. And, and not just like international culture, but like, um, you know, I think subculture, Right? I like to know things. I'm really annoying because me and my wife, when we're watching movies, I'm Googling everything in the middle of the movie because I want to know what it is that I'm really watching, right? Um, in Australia, there's this really, and so when I, talk to like, when I talk to JD and Kathy, I usually try to like find something that I don't know about their culture or about the way that they do things in Australia. And so um, whether it's crocodiles or 
um, I don't know, different names for things, um, you know, what they eat, all that stuff. I just want to know stuff. Um, and and there's, this, there's this crazy thing, like, um, I discovered that there's a bird. It's called a bowerbird. Has, any, has anybody ever heard of that before? Do you, do you know what a bowerbird is? My wife knows what a bowerbird is because I made her watch the thing. Here's the thing. Bowerbirds are amazing. And, and this is what happens. A bowerbird is a bird that will prepare meticulously in every way possible, will search high and low for everything that they can find in order to create an environment that will attract someone that they can love. They'll find straws. They'll find things with color. I mean, meticulous. They will move things around like, you know, somebody with OCD in, the, in, in your house to make sure that the environment is absolutely right and that it's perfect. What an example that is. See, God moves like a, like a wind. And sometimes you can't see it's coming. Sometimes you just see the aftermath of what happened when it came. But you feel it and you know that it's there. It doesn't have a shape. It doesn't have a size. It doesn't have a color. But you know that God's spirit is there in that space. And it's supposed to live in your heart. Here, in this space. And so like bower birds, we need to continue to prepare and meticulously look for things to be able to make space so that God can speak to us and allow us to experience the true essence of what love is supposed to be. And sometimes it's not just for ourselves. Sometimes it's for those empty seats that are next to you. And on some level, it, it's kind of like... Um, It's like a fire. Think about this for a second. There's this verse in Jeremiah, and it says, but if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is like a fire, a fire in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I can't. you meet God, it changes you forever. But when we're exposed to all these cheap imitations of what a life with him is supposed to look like, when we have bad examples, when we don't have good model behavior, it's hard to separate the real from the fake. And it makes us weary. It makes us tired. But there are things that you can do to reignite that fire again. See, there's three things that require, that make up, that make fire happen. The first one is a spark. It's got to be heat. Something has to happen. There's got to be an encounter. There's got to, there has to be, without a shadow of a doubt, there has to be something that ignites it. And for some of us, it can be a spoken word, it can be the presence of a person, it can be a preach, it can be a song, it can be anything that takes you to that innermost region of where God lives and reminds you that there is a purpose and there is a point. 
The other thing that's required is fuel. Once the spark happens, you have to kindle that fire to keep it burning. Some of us in our own lives, walk with me through this metaphor, are using the wrong things to fuel the fire. There's a thirst in our lives, in our hearts, and in our relationships romantically, in our relationships with our parents, in our relationships with our kids, in the relationships with our neighbors, our jobs, whatever, and we're using the wrong things to stoke the fire. We're not satiated. If you're thirsty and dehydrated, drinking soda is not going to help you. It makes you more thirsty. Right? What does that wood, what does that material look like to keep the fire burning? How do you expect to know God's will for your life or the will that he has for the church that you're a part of if we can't even talk to him? I can't say, coming from Southern California, we have people who say that they know celebrities all the time. Oh, yeah, I know so-and-so. Yeah, you maybe do, but do they know you? Relationship is something that has to be fostered. It has to be kindled. What material are you using in your life to rekindle those relationships and that fire in your relationship with God? What does that look like? Is it good things? Is it the right things? Is it the things that Jesus talks about? Or is it other stuff? Some of us, the third thing is, is, is oxygen. In order for fire to, to burn, it needs oxygen. You need to be able to breathe. And sometimes if we're so consumed with all the stuff that's horizontal, we lose sight of the stuff that's vertical. We listen to the louder voices in our lives that are screaming for us to do this thing or that thing or pay attention to this or pay attention to that and we're not listening to the right voice. Sometimes we need to take a step back. Busyness doesn't mean we're advancing and we need to breathe and we need to to take in the oxygen. Right? There's this really interesting thing about Hebrew. I don't know if you know this or not, but Hebrew is considered to be the language of God. That's what it is. The first written word was when God wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone for Moses. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to Hebrew, but Hebrew, every character is in the shape of a flame. There's fire in God's word. It illuminates and it burns. Here's the fundamental question. And maybe today is more about questions than it is about answers. There's this, um, there's this other saying that I'll, I'll leave us with. And it's from a guy named St. Augustine, and he says that things are moved by their weights. And my weight is my love, and wherever I'm carried, it's my love that carries me. What is it that's carrying you? What's moving you? 
What is it that God wants to do in your life to change it, to bring you closer to him so that there's more clarity? Let's pray. Lord, whatever those things are, we are just so um, thankful that you are the God that knows. And I pray, Lord, that um, just kind of as we walk through this next song and we um, just honor you and give credit where credit's due, that you would speak to us in the private places of our lives, the places that no one else can see and that no one else can hear. And Lord, I pray that... um, you would just open up those things that we need to be able to create space for you in our lives. Lord, that so that the love that um, we need to receive and we need to give isn't limited to a fairy tale, but that it can be made tangible so that we can experience it and we can share it with others. I pray, Lord, that... Um, For those three things, God, I pray that you would ignite that spark in our lives, individually and collectively, in the body of our community. I pray, God, that you would provide us with the kindling that we need that's healthy and that's not cheap and that lasts. And God, more importantly, I pray, God, that you would give us air, give us the oxygen that we need to breathe. And let the fire in our lives, Lord, burn not just red hot, but blue hot.